0: All right, well, good morning, everyone, um, as you're getting settled, uh, glad to be here. So this is really my first time uh, teaching an Equipping Hour, and so I'm, I'm glad to be here, so just kind of bear with me, uh, you know, and, and don't be too tough. So uh, we are continuing our study in First Peter, so if you have your Bibles, uh, go ahead and open, open them to First Peter uh, chapter 4. We're going to be in verses 12 through 19 this morning, and I'm going to start off by reading the passage. Uh, and then we're going to open in prayer, and then we'll get into the text this morning. <clears throat> so 1 Peter 4:12 uh, through 19 reads, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Lord, we're so thankful for the encouraging words of this text regarding suffering. We pray that you will open our hearts and our minds this morning, not only to hear, but also to apply these words to our lives that you would be glorified through us. In Christ's name, amen. So suffering. Uh, This is something we all deal with. It takes many forms, such as physical, emotional, financial, and others. It ranges in severity and visibility as well. For example, someone may be suffering privately with health problems. There may be persecution or ridicule within their family. A job loss because your values don't align with a worldly corporate culture or mocking from former friends that you've lost due to your faith. A church shooting, a public execution of Christians overseas, put out on the internet, or even the very severe and public suffering of our very own Garza family that they've been experiencing for some time now, prolonged suffering due to no fault of their own. Suffering comes in many forms, but one thing is sure, and that's we're all subject to it. Even looking at the definition of suffering, when we look at how it's defined, it's so broad. It is defined as the state of undergoing pain, distress, hardship. I mean, who hasn't experienced this? From our youngest in our family to the oldest, we've all suffered. You may be suffering right now, either as a result of your own doing or something totally out of your control. But it hasn't always been this way. Before the fall, there was no suffering. Eden was a perfect place, right? Adam and Eve were in perfect communion with God. Suffering was not a factor. Similarly, in the new heavens and on the new earth, there will be no suffering. But we're here now, in this in-between time, in the church age, where suffering does affect us. It's part of our reality. So what do we do? What do we as Christians suffering do? How do we understand this in relation to God and his sovereignty? And what what is the purpose of suffering and how should we respond? These are all the issues that Peter in our text this morning covers. Again, we're in 1 Peter. This is chapter 4, verses 12 through 19. And in 1 Peter, Peter's been discussing suffering several times already in this letter. This section of the letter... Peter provides insight and guidance on the topic of suffering as a Christian. Peter makes four main points in this text, which we're going to be covering this morning. Someone asked do we have a handout? No, I came a little unprepared, but there will be four points if you're taking notes. So Peter, just as some background to this letter, right, Peter is writing this letter to Christians in Asia Minor, most likely around 60, between 60 and 63 A.D., And he's writing from Rome. And this timing and place is important because this just precedes the burning of Rome, which happens in 64 AD. And there's a severe persecution of Christians that happens immediately after the burning of Rome, headed up by the Emperor Nero. However, the suffering that Peter's describing in this chapter is not that suffering. We're before that. In fact... He's not talking about physical beating or torture. That's not what's described in 1 Peter. We're going to see in this text that he's describing persecution, slander, right? There is a a focused persecution on Christians, um, but it's not the kind of systematic, um, you know, emperor-wide kind of persecution, physical beating and hanging and burning of Christians. That's not what's going on here. This is a trial of slander and persecution primarily and mistreatment. But his guidance and the lesson here are equally applicable to all suffering and all trials, regardless of their form or their severity, whether physical, emotional, financial, or even torture or death. These truths remain the same. Peter's first point in this text is that Christians should expect to suffer. Chapter 4, verse 12 clearly starts a new section of this letter. And Peter says, he says, beloved, he's saying, dear friends, fellow Christians. So he's talking to our brothers and sisters in Christ. It's a loving greeting to fellow Christians, and he exhorts them not to be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon them, to test them as though something strange were happening to them. That's what Peter's saying. Peter's instructing them, don't be surprised, don't be bewildered, don't be taken back when trials come. We have a natural tendency, right, to say, you know, why me? Why would God allow this to happen to me? We're taken back. We even question God's love for us at times. We can play the victim either in excusing our own actions that have caused the trials or that we as Christians shouldn't have to suffer like this. After all, wouldn't God protect his children that are from suffering the same way that we would protect our children from suffering? That's our thought line. But we're not God. And Scripture throughout couldn't be more clear that this isn't the case. And Peter is saying in this text, don't do this. Don't question. Don't be surprised when when trials and suffering come. In fact, John, in 1520, uh, the book of John, rather, 1520, Jesus himself tells us to expect suffering when he says, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. So not only should we not be surprised, by trials, as Peter states, but Christians, we should expect trials and suffering to come. That's what Jesus said. Peter describes this trial as a fiery trial, and uh, for the purpose of testing us. And although the term fiery trial, if you look at that text, clearly means burning, he's talking about fire, um, he's using it as a metaphor. Not for the destruction of a consuming fire destroying us, but as a faith refining fire. Like the smelting of gold burning off the impurities. This is the purpose of our suffering, of trials, and God uses these trials to test us, to refine our faith, to produce righteousness within us for his glory. You see, Peter used very similar wording in chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, if you want to follow along. is that regardless of the source of suffering, sinful or not, suffering and trials are how God purifies his church. This is how he tests his people, claiming to be Christians to see if they truly are. He works within believers to identify and root out sin and produce righteousness within us. Through trials, through suffering, that's how he operates. So unlike us, who make a great effort to shield our children from suffering and trials, God intentionally uses suffering and trials for good in the lives of his children. doesn't feel that way at times, but that's the Lord's plan and that's what he's carrying out. This is all part of God's plan for his people and for his church. So Peter instructs us, don't be surprised when trials come, expect them. And he goes on to tell us what we should do in verse 13, and that is to rejoice. And that is Peter's second main point in this text. It is Christians are called to rejoice in suffering. So don't be surprised when they come. We should expect trials and suffering the same way Christ was persecuted. We will be persecuted. Don't be surprised. What are we to do? We're to rejoice in suffering. Verse 13 says, but rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's suffering that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. But he doesn't say here to rejoice in all trials and suffering. In this text, is specific to rejoicing when suffering for Christ's sake or, that is, because of our allegiance to Christ. For example, losing a friendship or a spouse because you become a Christian, being banned from social media because you're proclaiming the gospel, losing friendships, uh, um, banned from social media for proclaiming the gospel, or missionaries that are in closed countries where Christianity is illegal and they're subject to arrest, beating, or even death. It's a trial of suffering because of your allegiance to Christ. That's what Peter's speaking of in this verse. And the proper response, Peter says, is to rejoice. Rejoice. Why? Because we're sharing in Christ's suffering. This is exactly what the apostles experienced in Acts chapter 5. So in Acts chapter 5, right, the apostles, uh, they had been arrested, um, and they were commanded not to teach of Christ. Uh, Their response was, what did they say? They said, uh, we have to obey God, not man. And so they went on teaching and preaching in Christ's name. They were arrested. They were thrown in jail. They escaped from jail with the help of an angel. If you remember the story, and what did they do? They went right back in the temple and started preaching Christ. They started teaching, exactly what God had told them to do. So they were confronted again. They were almost put to death, and we see what happens in the end of at the end of this in in chapter or in verse forty, where it says, "And when they were called, when the when they had called the apostles, they beat them." They charged them not to speak of Jesus' name. They let them go. And when they left, the presence of the council rejoicing that they they, they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. That is Christ's name. That's exactly what Peter is speaking of here. The apostles were suffering because of their allegiance to Christ. And their response was to rejoice and to go on teaching in the temple and going house to house doing the same. So we'll see later in the text that this is exactly what we're called to do also. Not only to rejoice, but to trust in the Lord and, and to do his will, bringing him glory. Just as the apostles were doing here in Acts chapter 5. So in Peter's call to rejoice in verse, in verse 13, if you look back at it, there's actually two different aspects to this. <clears throat> there, is, uh, there is a current and a future state. So first, Uh, If we're persecuted for Christ's sake, we're called to rejoice now, today, because we're participating in Christ's suffering now. So we're rejoicing now. But the second half of this verse says that we may rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. So we're looking forward that we'll rejoice and be glad in the future when God's glory is ultimately revealed. And this is not a call to look forward to the time when we die and go to heaven or united with Christ. Rather, this is a call, to, this is a call to, um, to the future eternal perspective in rejoicing with Christ when his full glory is on display to the whole world when he returns. This should be motivating and comforting during our time of suffering or trial And this is how we're called to rejoice, both because of the immediate suffering along with Christ, participating in Christ's suffering, but rejoicing that we will be a part of, we will be with Christ and witnessing his glory upon return, and the whole world will be be on display before. So while, while verse 13 commands believers, commands us to rejoice in present suffering, verse 14 goes on to make the point that believers are actually blessed by God. If they are insulted because of their allegiance to Christ, a further reason to rejoice. So verse 14 says, if you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. So where Peter had before used that term fiery trials, right? We talked about fiery trials. Here, he now uses the term insulted. He says, if we're insulted in the name of Christ which really helps clarify that he wasn't talking about a physical torture or beating before. Remember, the opposition and persecution being levied on Christians in this context was mostly verbal, you know, and and persecution. Uh, Not to say that physical persecution of Christians didn't happen at this time. We actually know that it did. There were Christians that were locked up. There were Christians that put to death, but there wasn't an edict or an empire-wide or a systematic effort to torture and imprison or put-to-death Christians yet, right? We know that came after the burning of Rome under, under, um, under Nero's rule, but this is before that. So they were being verbally assaulted for their allegiance to Christ, and here Peter makes the point that they're actually blessed for that. They're blessed because they're being insulted in Christ's name. He says, if you are insulted in the name of Christ, you are blessed. Matthew records Jesus actually making a very similar point in Matthew 5.11. You don't need to go there, but I'll read the text. Where Matthew records, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute, persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. That's on Christ's account. Rejoice and be glad that your reward is great in heaven. It's exactly what Peter's talking about. So we are blessed specifically when we suffer, when we're insulted for the name of Christ. But what is this blessing? What's Peter talking about? What is the blessing? Well, the language Peter uses in the end of verse 14 is a little bit tricky. Um, In the original Greek, I don't speak Greek. I've read a few different commentaries on this section, uh, and and I'll give you kind of the best interpretation uh, of, of what it means. The ESV records it as, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Um, when you break that down and look at it, you know, trying to figure out exactly what it means can be a little tricky. You are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. <clears throat> Peter's explaining here why we're blessed. And his point is this, that believers suffering for Christ were blessed because they possessed right now The glory that would be theirs at the end time, that is the glory of God. So right now they possess the glory of God at at the end time. And they are also blessed because of the gift of the Holy Spirit that they have today, right now. So there's two aspects here, the glory of God in the future, and the glory of the Spirit right now. They have both right now, even though one does to come in the future. This is the nature of the blessing that Peter is speaking of when we suffer for Christ, when we're insulted for Christ. So the question is, how do we know if we're suffering for Christ, right? Because he's defined this as a blessing that comes when we suffer for Christ. How do we know that? That's Peter's third main point. We must evaluate the source of our suffering, really evaluate why we're suffering, determine if we're suffering for Christ or some other purpose. Peter talks about this in verses 15 through 18. And verse 15 says this, But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Peter's saying that suffering as a result of these offenses is not suffering for Christ. He said this is a blessing for Christ. Now he's saying don't do this. Don't suffer for these these reasons. And hence, they do not result in God's blessing. He's making a distinction in suffering based on its source or its cause, Is it for Christ or is it because of our own non Christ centered actions? Why are we suffering? Well, it's easy for us to rationalize and excuse punishments in our own minds and suffering when it's even when it's deserved and even when it's self induced. We explain that we can explain them away as Christian suffering when they're clearly not. We justify our sins. And that it's a result, of, a result of suffering, sorry, we justify our sins and its result, or think our suffering is more than we've deserved. We think, hey, I've learned my lesson, I've paid my debt, anything beyond this must be Christian suffering, when in fact it's not. That's not the source of the suffering. You have made, may have committed a serious crime and will never be released, but you feel you served enough time, so now it's Christian suffering. Maybe you've committed adultery and your marriage will be taken years or may never be reconciled, even though you're ready to get back together and you think it's okay and you should be on the mend. The reality is that some suffering has long-lasting and natural consequences and damages that'll never be fully repaired on this earth. But just because the consequences are more severe than you think it should be, just because it doesn't make it suffering for Christ. And while Peter is saying, God, what Peter is saying is God does not give the same blessing for these types of suffering, <clears throat> he is, while he's saying he doesn't give the same blessing for these types of suffering, he's not saying that God won't use them for good in your life and for his glory, like the refining fiery trial. That's exactly what God will do. So, even if it doesn't receive the same blessing, it doesn't mean God doesn't work through these kinds of suffering and trials for our good. Here, Peter is saying, is not just saying suffering for these reasons won't receive that same blessing, but he's clearly saying, don't suffer for these reasons. He's saying, don't do these things. It's an explicit prohibition, it's an exhortation to walk in obedience to God not to be the thief or the murderer or the evildoer. Peter provides really four examples here of non-Christian acts in this verse that can produce warranted suffering and he t- that he tells us not to do, and they are structured really from the most severe to the least, starting with the murderer and the thief. It seems clear, I think we all understand what a murderer and a thief is. Both of these today and back then were criminal offenses, with a God-appointed government structure to punish uh, those that were guilty in for enforce, enforcing those laws. would result, The punishment could result in death in jail, suffering for the guilty. Those two seem pretty clear. But the third term, the evildoer, it's much broader. And it shows that Peter is not providing here an exhaustive list of things not to do. It's not limited to murderers and thieves, or even criminal acts. You see, the the evildoer would include other criminal acts, but it's not just limited to that. It could also be described as the opposite of a good doer, right? If you're not a good doer, you're an evildoer, vice versa. So while you may think you're not doing evil, I would challenge you to ask yourself if you're doing good. I would argue that in Scripture, it's really black and white. It's light and dark. Scripture ultimately leaves little or no room for the gray. So while it may not be a crime, is it evil? Or is it not good? A speeder getting a ticket? An unprepared student failing a class? A lazy man losing his job, unable to pay his bills? Someone getting sick from overindulging in food or alcohol, for example? None of these are criminal acts, but are they good? I don't think anyone would argue that they are. So I'll give you an example. <clears throat> when I was younger, when I was about 18, well before I became a Christian, um, I was, in fact, I was probably an outspoken atheist back at this time. Well, I was, not probably. Um, I had a date that I was super excited about. And, and it turns out I had a dentist appointment on that same day. So it was to fill a cavity, and they were gonna have to numb my mouth, right? It's part of getting a cavity filled. Most of you, or not all of you have done that. Well, I'm thinking this through, and I don't see how this is gonna go well for my date, right? It's like, you know, I'm, I'm gonna be numb. You know, half my face is gonna be numb. I'm gonna be drooling all over myself. And, and this isn't gonna go like how I had this date planned. <clears throat> so, I guess I could have rescheduled the dentist appointment, but instead, I just told the, the, the uh, dentist to do it with no Novocaine, <coughs> right? I figured, you know, it'll be quick. Like, how bad could it really be? It turns out it's pretty bad. So, I suffered, and I, I definitely wouldn't recommend anyone doing this. Um, it's def- definitely a bad choice. On my part, was it illegal? No. Like, it wasn't illegal. Um, was it stupid and sinful? Absolutely. Absolutely. And my suffering was a direct result of my sinful pride and, frankly, my sinful intentions for this date. Um, I was suffering not for Christ. Even if I had been a Christian, I wouldn't be suffering for Christ. I mean, if, if you're not a Christian, you can't suffer for Christ inherently. So, but in this case, even if I had been, it wouldn't have been for Christ. I was definitely suffering as an evildoer. Um, so, so, I share this story, right, because, I, you know, it's kind of entertaining. And, you know, you can imagine me being in a lot of pain. Um, but, but I also think it's a good example uh, that this category that Peter's talking about, right, this evildoer category is actually much broader Um, than all the other groups that were mentioned here when they talk about non-Christian suffering. And I think that's important. Um, As a result, you know, when you're evaluating the source of your suffering, this is one of those main areas that you really have to consider. Are you suffering for good? Are you a good doer? Or are you suffering because you're an evildoer? Or is it something that's totally outside of your control? Um, But here Peter's talking about these categories of, of not to be included in. So the final term here that Peter used in evaluating our source of suffering uh, is the meddler. So the meddler, this is a unique term. It's not used anywhere else in Scripture. Uh, it's found here. It's, um, it's basically unnecessarily getting involved in other people's matters. So, and it's interesting that Peter uses it here. Um, Peter's saying don't do this. John Calvin took it a little differently. Uh, he defined it as one who covets what belongs to another. It's a little more specific, I think, than the, the term is, it actually means. Um, my, my layman's interpretation is kind of mind your own business. Like, don't get involved in other people's affairs for no reason. And I think that's what the text is really driving at. Uh, and there's suffering that come from that, right? You invade into someone else's personal business. You don't really have business being there. Uh, maybe it's gossip. Maybe it's not. Maybe it's some other reason. But you can offend people, you can break relationships, there can be suffering that comes out of those actions, and and it's unnecessary. Peter's saying, don't do it. So again, uh, while Peter is calling us to both not do these things, but to evaluate the source of our suffering, uh, to really see if we're suffering for Christ, you know, or is this a natural result uh, or consequence of our own sin or our own actions? So, and those are the things that Peter is saying, not only not to, not to suffer for, but don't do it all. So, if you're suffering as a Christian, you evaluate what you're suffering, you say, hey, I, I, it's not that, you know, I'm suffering as a Christian. Well, Peter goes on to provide further encouragement in verse 16. So, verse 16 reads, yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name, that name being Christ, a Christian. So this is a further call to evaluate the source of our suffering, and when Peter says suffering as a Christian, he's saying suffering because they're followers of Christ, because of their allegiance to Christ. That is a Christian, right? A Christ follower. That's what being a Christian means. That's what the word means. And in this case, Peter gives a clear kind of don't and do statement if you're suffering as a Christian. He says, don't be ashamed for your suffering, right? It's natural for us to feel shame when we suffer as a result of our own wrongdoings, right? The Holy Spirit is here, we're convicted, there should be guilt, you know, there's, there might be pride, there's shame, there's a lot of emotions going through. Uh, when we've done something wrong and we're suffering because of that. But in this case, suffering as a Christian, there's no wrongdoing. There's nothing to be shameful about. And that's what Peter's saying. In fact, we just talked about Christian suffering resulting in a blessing from God. So there should be no shame when suffering simply because we are a Christian. Instead, Peter says, glorify God in the name of Christian, in the name of Christ, as a Christ follower. Don't renounce God, but double down on being a Christian. How? By enduring suffering with joy for the privilege of of your allegiance to Jesus Christ, sharing in Christ's suffering gives God and give God the glory. Moving to verse 17, we see that suffering of believers is the beginning of God's judgment. Beginning with the church or the household of God. And the household of God here is referring to the body of believers, right? God's people, Christians, the body of Christ. It's the people that he's referring to when he says, the household of God. Well, judgment here is ultimately referring to that final judgment. This judgment begins now is what Peter's saying. It starts now, and it starts with us. It starts with Christians. That is, he's saying that now, believers experiencing suffering, and this is the purifying judgment of suffering and trials, and it begins with believers now. So he's using that term judgment not to mean a single point in time and judgment, although that's what he's pointing to. He's saying, hey, that process, that's starting now, and it starts through trials, through suffering of God's people as they're refined, as they continue to grow in righteousness and build the body of the church. Peter here is arguing kind of from the lesser to the greater. He's saying, if even those who are going to be saved, right, the Christians, these are God's own people, even if those people are purified by trials and suffering now, which is difficult and painful, when the outcome, what is the outcome for those that reject the gospel? The enemies of God. He's saying that surely be, should be much greater. So he makes this point, right? We're suffering trials now and we're God's people. How much worse is that going to be for those that reject the gospel? The wording here, actually, I find. Pretty interesting because Peter describes unbelievers as those who do not obey the gospel, right? He doesn't say those that don't believe or those that don't trust. It doesn't matter what we say or what we say we believe. What you believe or don't believe does not change the truth of God. And ultimately, it's our actions that show our belief. Unbelief leads to disobedience. As Christ said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And here, unbelievers is described as those that do not obey the gospel. Conversely, believers then would be described as those that obey the gospel. You see, by using this phrasing, Peter's saying that we are ultimately defined by our actions, not our words or appearances. And this thought line regarding the ultimate outcome for the Christians and the unbelievers closes in verse 18, in which Peter is taking a quote, Uh, from Proverbs 11.31, actually from the Septuagint. So that's the Greek translation of the Old Testament. The wording's a little different than the original Hebrew, and Peter uses the Greek version intently because the wording's a little different, and and it goes to make his point. It reads this way. He says, And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Within the context here, Peter is not indicating that the righteous are scarcely saved. Like, hey, they barely made it into heaven. Like, they were headed for destruction and then pulled from the flames at the last minute. So that's not what Peter is saying. What Peter is saying is that the justified sinners, right, Christians, are saved with difficulty. When he says scarcely saved, it means Saved with difficulty. And that's the Greek, that's why that Greek use is, is important. With difficulty. And that difficulty is the suffering, it's the pain, it's the loss in the refining, fiery trials that believers must endure as part of being saved. That's the path for God's people, you see. How much worse will it be for those that reject Him? That's what Peter asked in this text how much worse will it be for the ungodly or the sinners? What will become of them? And insinuation is obviously much worse, right? If this is God's plan for his people and the way he works to refine and gather his people, how much worse will it be for those uh, that don't believe the gospel, for the ungodly and the sinner? Much worse. And this brings us to Peter's fourth and final point in this text. And that is that Christians are to respond to suffering by entrusting their suffering to God. See Peter concludes this portion of the letter saying that if you are suffering according to God's will as a Christian for Christ as previously established rather than for doing something evil or some of our own actions entrust it all to God and follow him verse 19 reads therefore let those who suffer suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator While doing good, Peter acknowledges here God is the creator and thus his sovereignty over all things, including suffering. Accordingly, we can be confident that he will not allow us to suffer beyond our capacity, that he will provide us enough strength to endure. After all, this is his plan for us, he's not going to give us a plan and not equip us in order to follow through with that plan. It doesn't mean it's easy. It doesn't mean it doesn't come without pain and with loss. But it does mean that it's possible. And not just possible, it's definite. Just be faithful, is what Peter's saying. Therefore, Peter says, suffering Christians are called to entrust all, it says their souls, meaning everything, entrust all with God and obey him. It says do good. What he's talking about is obey God's will. So trust all with God and obey him. As Peter recounted a few chapters earlier, Christ himself modeled this very response. So if you go to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21, Christ himself modeled this very response, and Peter records it this way. For to this you have been called, Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. That's exactly what we should be doing. Trusting and obeying God while suffering. So in closing, let me close with this. When, not if, you suffer now and in the future, don't be surprised. Evaluate the source of your suffering. If your suffering is a Christian and for Christ, find peace in the great love and security of your Savior, knowing that your trials produce blessings and it's for your good and his glory. Rejoice, trust, and follow him doing his will. If you're a Christian suffering for some other reason, repent if sin is involved, and rejoice in God's love and his refining work in your life. Trust and follow him. And if you're an unbeliever suffering, I would appeal to you today to repent, to trust in Christ and his suffering and his death on the cross on your behalf so that you may be covered with his righteousness and obtain the peace and joy within the suffering that only God can provide. Let me close with prayer. God, thank you for our time together this morning and for your great love, mercy, and kindness. May we be encouraged to remain steadfast and faithful during our time of suffering, knowing that you are in complete control over everything and use these trials for our good and for your glory. May we all have soft and correctable hearts, be quick to repent and forgive, and eager to follow and obey your words for your glory. Amen.